This podcast is recorded on stolen and unceded Aboriginal land. We acknowledge the First Nations and elders of this country and we join their calls for justice. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. It is a shared birthday today of my little sister Aviva's two best friends, Ella and Trey. Oh, that's cute. But no one cares about that. Fuck that. Fuck those people. The important thing is that this week our Prime Minister and the treasurer of the country had the same birthday. What? I know they shared a birthday. That's crazy. Isn't that kind of crazy? That's random. You know what that is? That's news. You're damn right it's news. The boss PM versus teen spirit treasurer, the generational divide at the heart of government. This is from the incredibly brave fourth estate that is the Sydney Morning Herald and our good friend James Masola, who just, he doesn't care whose toes he steps on. Mm, Yeah, yeah, this is the tough stuff. On March 2nd, 1996, John Howard defeated Paul Keating. Anthony Albanese turned 33 and was elected to parliament. That is kind of crazy. And Jim Chalmers turned 18. Fast forward 27 years, Albanese and Chalmers, 15 years apart in age, occupy the nation's top two political jobs. Albanese is celebrating his 60th birthday, while Chalmers is now 45. Get owned. The PM is one of the last of the baby boomers, a well-known music fan and occasional (laughs) DJ, with his taste running from current acts such as Gang of Youths and Lime Cordial to classics, including Radio Birdman, Billy Bragg and Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) He came of age in 1991. Tertiary education was still free. What happened to that? Mm, what happened to that? Interesting. Oh, I don't know. I'll research that. I'll come back that. to you. Yeah. Inflation was soaring at 9.4%. Everyone was talking about uh, Azaria Chamberlain after a coroner found she was killed by a dingo. Oh, In contrast, Gen X Chalmers is Australia's. <laughs> okay. No. I'm sorry. I forgot. It doesn't say this. <laughs> I forgot about this sentence before going in. In contrast, Gen X Chalmers is Australia's first hip hop treasurer. When I say L, you say O, G, L to the. You need to stop this. He lists Jay Z, Nas, Tupac Shakur, and Biggie Smalls as his favorite acts, with the sideline of main stage grunge acts such as Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden. Australia's first hip hop treasurer. That's, so, that's, that's dope, um, man. That's, that's so fucking, dope. Yeah, that's rad. That's, <laughs> that's both whack and dope. Incredible stuff. Anyway, it goes on, and I don't know. I think that's probably the peak of the ridiculousness. A crazy article. Basically, they're saying, hey, it's the, the prime minister and the treasurer. They got the same birthday. Isn't that crazy? But a slightly different generation. Of course, that doesn't influence their politics in any way whatsoever. Um, Chalmers is from the right, Albo's from the left. Of course, they're both neoliberal <laughs> shills. And it's basically saying that the prime minister and the treasurer need to be able to work together to do good stuff, I guess. It is kind of funny because I like, yeah, framing Albanese as a baby boomer, even though I thought technically that's kind of on the cusp, like he could still be considered Gen X, but okay. Um, doesn't work for the story, I guess. But yeah, given how hard Labor tries to make him like the cool young PM, that's quite funny. The cool young PM landlord. Good landlord. Good landlord. <laughs> they're just they're rich, rich guys. They're all they're rich, rich white guys. guys. Okay? They're, rich they're, rich, white they're rich people. That's what they are. So happy birthday. Happy birthday, dog. <laughs> yeah. Bruh. Jim Chalmers all up in this bitch. The Greens will be seen as the great wreckers. Don't let people convince you Peter Dutton and the Coalition are the wreckers. It's certainly the Greens. Adam Bant and his crowd are the ones we've got to watch. Frankly, I've always found the Greens to be a real serious danger to Australia. A serious danger to Australia. Hi, I'm Emerald. Um, just me here today. 
What? Tom Shush. <laughs> nah, Tom's here. Uh, this is Serious Danger, a podcast about green politics in Australia. It's not an official Greens Party podcast. It's made possible Mm-mm. with the help of the Green Institute and produced by Marco Griffin. And this week is taking a look at the Labor government's radical class war overhaul of our superannuation system. And yeah. also we're talking about what happened last weekend at Mardi Gras and just the absolute state of pride in general. The absolute state of things. Huge <laughs> thanks and love, of, uh, as always, to our new patrons. You can go to patreon.com forward slash seriousdangerau. For just three bucks a month, you get bonus content and you help us make this show happen. Thank you mm. so much to our existing patrons and these newbies, Kobe, Melissa, AM, Tom, Laura, Alex, Allison, Jai, Renee, Bianca, Chris, Clary, Jordan, and Jane. Welcome. Welcome. Bienvenue. Frende. Étranger. Yeah. Stranger. What? Were you were you quoting uh, Cabaret, the musical? No. No, okay. <clears throat> that's uh, <laughs> that's what I associate with uh, Bienvenue. It's a great musical. Anyway, hey, a cheeky competing podcast plug. I know you the love it when I this, do this. Mike. And when it- <laughs> <laughs> just bleep it out. Yeah. But I just thought that people of this, listeners of this podcast might really enjoy an episode that I released of my other podcast, Like I'm a Six-Year-Old, with mm. Polly Hemming, who's a senior researcher at the Australia Institute. She's an expert on climate and energy stuff. She's been holding the government to account and dissecting just how truly shit the safeguard mechanism policy is. And I researched the insane, dodgy world of carbon offsets this week that made me so depressed. But Polly was really great and sort of talked me through the whole thing. So I think if you want to get ready for the big parliamentary fight that is coming up that we really want the Greens to hold their nerve on, you might want to have a listen to that chat with uh, with Polly Hemming on Like I'm a Six-Year-Old, if you so wish. Yeah, maybe if you're a big nerd loser. <laughs> yes, that's exactly who listens to this Yeah, show, exactly. This Go on, you nerd losers. But listen to this one first. And a brief note on this, I mean, again, I'm sure we'll come to this next week as, as Parliament goes back and this fight around the safeguard mechanism cooks up. But there is a article in The Australian this morning saying that Climate Change and Energy Minister Chris Bowen is planning to use special ministerial powers to ensure Labor's crackdown on the nation's biggest emitting facilities starts on July the 1st, basically saying they're going to use these regulation powers. They don't need to use the mm. Parliament if the Greens were to, say, vote down the safeguard mechanism legislation. Yes, what do we think of that? Rather than legislation. I missed that. And by this morning, obviously, we're talking about Friday. So who knows what will have happened by Sunday when this comes out. Yeah. But I, yeah, I think that they are scared of us and it's exciting. <laughs> I remember them saying, remember around the, the emissions reduction targets, they were like, oh, we have ways of doing this by regulation. We don't even fucking need you. Well, but this is, I mean, to be honest, it's great for Greens messaging because it kind of scuttles the only response that they have to our, like, to the party's attempts to to push for a better deal, which is that we're going to delay any climate action and ruin the whole thing. Like, if they can do it by regulation, then actually (laughs) the Greens are just good. (laughs) Yeah, we can say, good, bitch. Yeah. Regulate. Please do. See if we can. Also, stop calling us. Right, first story of this week. This is breaking news, Emerald. The Australian Labor Political Party has remembered somehow. Some someone, you know, like sent the wrong email somewhere or something got through, and apparently they remembered that taxing the wealthy people is really good. But of course, they're doing it in the most labor way possible. It's incredible how they've managed to take a good thing, which is taxing 
rich people in this country to make lives better for ordinary people. And they've said, we're going to fuck this up as much as possible while still sort of holding on to the basic tenets of a vaguely decent uh, plan. Talking specifically about the changes to the super tax concessions that the Albanese Labor government from the Australian Labor Political Party announced this week. Did you follow this very much or does your brain sort of shut down whenever anyone starts talking about super and tax bullshit like mine? Absolutely shuts down. Like <laughs> I did not have time to even read about this this week, so I'm looking forward to explaining it to me. But also I like to read it in my head as more like a super tax, like the word super just referring to like something really cool and, and mega. You're fun. Thanks. You're a fun person. Mm. I'm random. <laughs> <laughs> On Tuesday, the Albanese government announced its modest and very sensible and very equitable measure to make our superannuation system fairer. Now, remember, Emerald, well, that fairer. super is amazing and like the best thing ever, and it's mm, a huge labor I achievement. I love my and privatized pension. It's so good. But also, it has turned into a massive tax shelter for the wealthy. So we need to make it fairer and better. Uh, and it is allowing super rich people to just hoard mm. massive amounts of money and not get taxed at all. But it is Almost great. Almost as though and that's how it's designed. But also, Almost. yeah, it's the greatest like democratic socialist achievement. Uh, it's in, incredible in Australia, yeah. Ever, and we could have had just like one big public fund, you no. know, with very low fees that that could be democratically accountable that we all could have put our pulling of savings into. Well, yeah, and Putin would be running the country. Is that what you want, Tom? Yes. Is that what you want? Yes, okay. I do. We are a pro-Putin podcast. We've, <laughs> always, we've always said that. Okay, they they want to legislate. The Albanese government are going to legislate to increase the tax on all future earnings on super accounts with more than three million dollars, at thirty percent up from fifteen percent. Only three million. Okay? So, like, what everyone has. That's that's obviously very accessible. And this is going to hit hardworking middle Australians. <laughs> yeah. Remember, it's it's only it's only earnings above three million dollars too. So it's all still marginal as well. So up to three million dollars, it's still at the concessional tax rate of fifteen percent. <laughs> Uh, but above that, above $3 million, every dollar over, $3 million will be taxed at 30%. So it's a doubling of that very generous uh, tax concession amount. Mm-hmm. This change will only affect 80,000 Australians. Uh, it's about 0.05% of the population. Not even the 1%. Not like even the 1%. when we're talking about literally, yeah. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's even less than that. And, yes, it's just making already generous tax concessions less generous. So a 30% tax rate is still considerably lower than the top marginal tax rate that you'd be paying on that money if it wasn't in super. The top marginal tax rate, 47% if you include the 2% Medicare levy. So still 17% lower than a marginal tax rate. Um, but of course, it's it's an outrage. Mm-hmm. The changes are retrospective. They're going to come in on the 1st of July, 2025, and they won't be indexed to inflation, which does mean that over time, more super accounts will be drawn into paying the 30% tax rate, which is an explicit part of the design of the policy to raise more money down the track um, to not index this particular change. And it's expected to raise $900 million over the next four years and eventually will end up raising about $2 billion a year for the government which is modest as fuck when you consider that in grand total, all the tax concessions that we have in our superannuation system is sitting around $52 billion every single year. It costs the budget, I hate using that phrase, $52 billion of tax concessions every year. This will eventually get us to $2 billion a year in extra revenue. The debt, the debt of the $52 billion. Well, at least we'll have some money to crack down on the debt and deficit legacy left to us by the Morrison government. Ooh, that dastardly Morrison government. I mean, this is it. Again, cost of living crisis. 
housing crisis, perma crisis, left, right, and center, people really struggling. What are we using this money for to pay down our debt? The thing that nobody fucking cares about and that is an absolute fuck you to ordinary people who are struggling. That is apparently where this massive money is going to. Did you see, like relevant to this conversation, the incredibly bleak article that I think came out this week about how record numbers of people are dipping into their superannuation to pay for dental work? Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. So like the irony of that, I mean, first of all, the fact that, yeah, people's super balances are going down because we're increasingly just like forcing people to use that money that's meant to be for retirement to pay for basic things like housing or healthcare. Um, And so they probably won't be affected by this cap because they'll have no fucking super left. But but also, yeah, like just the fact that they're not going to use this money to make dental care fucking free, of course, nothing like that. Mm. It's to balance the magic numbers on the spreadsheet. It's so funny, like, and look, we've had, we did a big episode with Rob Lichter and from Workers Against Super about how our super system is a neoliberalized, privatized version of the pension system Mm -hmm. and how the Keating government specifically rejected a much more collectivist, actually, actually closer to democratic socialism approach to how we go about doing this as they do in, say, the Nordic countries or Norway. But yeah, I've gone completely 180. When when uh, there was the talk about people raiding their super accounts during the pandemic, you know, everyone's like, "That's an outrage." Of course, that money is for t- retirement. I sort of I've come around 180 percent, going, "Well, no, that people should have money to to do that kind of stuff, or at least this is people's money, and they it would be way better, a way better system if people had were able to keep more of their own wages to pay for their life now and the welfare state was expanded and extended to sort of cover all these other basic things that we need from, you know, obviously housing to to dental and and Medicare, of course. That would be a way better system. You want both. You want... You want super, well, you want super in the form of higher wages plus a properly funded pension system. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, but that's the thing. Like it doesn't need to be super. It just needs to be higher wages and better funded services so that people don't need to pay an arm and a leg for those basics and dip into savings, you know? Yeah. So the fact that we're raising this extra revenue to pay down the debt is sort of seems to be lost in the everyone celebrating this phrase as like incredible work from the Labor Party to steal money back from the bloody rich and the toffs because mm. <laughs> it's not going anywhere. It's paying down the debt, this, this sort of illusion. I mean, we've talked about it before, how much the debt and debt disaster was a complete fabrication in the wake of the GFC that Labor seems to have swallowed completely and is prepared to not consider things like raising job seeker or, yes, doing things that immediately help people's life during this cost of living crisis, but would rather dedicate that money to paying down this massive debt, even though Australia's debt situation is the envy of the world. We've still, you know, got a very low debt to GDP ratio compared to all other countries. So, you know, the Greens, some Teals, industry supergroups are saying, oh, well, you're going to get this new money. Maybe you should use that money to actually make the super system fairer by, you know, pushing to get 26 weeks of paid parental leave sooner and get people to pay super on mm. it. But Anthony Albanese just immediately shut that down and says, yes, we would have liked to have paid super on PPL when the budget allows. I've mm-hmm. made that very clear. I've also said we have trillion dollars of debt. We are responsible economic <laughs> managers. Possible. We need to address the inflationary pressures that are there in the economy. That requires us to be very prudent about any expenditure. Literally, and you can imagine like Anthony Albanese has kids, doesn't he? <laughs> Yep. And they're like, Dad, can we have Maccas? And he's like, uh, look, we have inherited a trillion dollars of debt from Scott Morrison <laughs> and inflation. So what do you want me to do, Sarah? Yeah. What do you want me to do? You want a McFlurry? Maybe you should have told that to Mr. Scott Morrison. Mr. Hawaii. Sarah's just like already in her room listening to Billy Bragg. 
But Dad, couldn't you just like not go ahead with those stage three tax cuts, which is giving away $250 billion to really wealthy people? Then we could afford to do lots of stuff. And he's like, all right, no, I'm, I'm docking your uh, pocket money from 3000 to 2000 this week. <laughs> You're only inheriting You're two of them, my, my houses properties. now. Yes. <laughs> he's like, you That's know what, Sarah? Because you said that, I'm going to increase the marginal tax rate on superannuation above $3 million and you know that's going to affect you. Sarah, that's because of you. You happy? You happy, you little bitch. I don't think he has a door. I think he's only got oh, one really? side. Anyway, <laughs> the question, is it a broken promise? Is this a broken promise? Did Labor say before the election they weren't going to make any changes to the superannuation system and now they are? Did they? Yes. I don't remember that. It is, it is absolutely a broken promise to the point where in all the reporting, the news, they have these things called cameras now and they record people saying stuff. It's, it's kind of crazy. Literally playing the footage of Anthony Albanese saying, we have no intention of making any changes to super. And now they're trying to spin that into saying, well, it's not a major change. We said we wouldn't make any major <laughs> changes to the superannuation system before the election. This is not a major change. It's say, a really good, awesome ch- change that we should totally get like heaps of credit for. But also it's super modest and isn't really going to change anything in our society whatsoever. Right. It's going to okay. pay down yeah. the debt. It's really hard sometimes, isn't it, to wrap my little stupid Greens brain around labour logic. <laughs> Should we care that it's a broken promise? So mm. Broken promise in, and, you know, quote, quote, in quotation marks. I think this gets a little this bit tricky, tricky, right? Yeah. Because obviously we hate politicians, politicians lie, and that's bullshit. But it is a good example, I think, in which you can make a political calculation, you can make the case for a policy it makes total sense in the broader context of labor being absolutely shit when it comes to taxing the wealthy broadly you'd say you'd do it you can explain it by using all the figures that they are this is affecting a tiny group of people who are very wealthy who will still be perfectly fine after this change comes through you can make that argument Mm. of course the ideal approach is to have good policies mm. before the mm. election. That really, I really would recommend that <laughs> yeah, to anybody recommend. listening. But yes, that's the thing. It's like, obviously I want them to do more taxing the rich and I encourage them to dip their toe in, which is like, I would say quite obviously what they're doing here to test the waters and see how how mad people get and who gets mad when they try something that might make rich people pay a little bit more in tax. But at the same time, yeah, when there is then the narrative and also the fact that they've broken an election promise. It just means that the next time that we go to voters and say, hey, these are our policies and you should vote on them and not vote for the other party's bad policies, voters don't believe Mm. it because they're like, yeah, but the policies don't represent what I'm actually voting for because I have no idea what a politician's going to do. And, like, it's frustrating because, yeah, then you can't just explain to people that they should vote for the good policies because they have no idea what they're voting for and it obviously just drives people further Mm. into anti-politics and makes it harder to to build like a, a revolutionary movement in electoral politics but and of course the broken promise more regularly goes the other way yeah. right like people promote you know, promising good shit before an election getting in and not doing that at all um certainly from well, the two I major think, parties i mean so. but that's the thing like a lot of the um the reaction to this saying that it's a broken promise is people who think that this is a bad thing yes right of course right rather than uh, arguing on the facts. I mean, the opposition is not amongst those people. I mean, they're arguing that it's a bad thing. Angus Taylor saying this is an outrage, it's a broken promise, and they have literally footage of him agreeing with Tanya Plibersek in 2016 saying that it's outrageous that people with this amount of money in their super accounts receive such generous tax yeah. concessions. 
And now he's saying, well, I'll tell you what Angus Taylor be- then and Angus Taylor now believes is that you shouldn't right. break the promise. okay. <laughs> yeah, all about promises, the fucking Liberal Party, of course. Yes, we promise to do terrible things. One of the only things, because like I said, I've been very switched off from this this week and one of my friends tagged me in the Instagram reel of that Today Show like spoof satire video yes. where it's got yes. the presenter yes. in Double Bay being like, it's tough. <laughs> Out here on the streets of Double Bay this morning, Carl and Sarah. You know, the community, they are counting their pennies, they are counting the stacks of $100 bills that they have strategically placed throughout their penthouses and mansions in case of a rainy day. Because this is basically a class warfare. And let's face it, no one likes it when the rich are the targets. Actually, quite a, yeah, a very funny piece. Like, there's going to be some tough conversations around marble top, <laughs> to, to, you know, kitchen tables this week, and they're going to have to sell the second BMW. Yes. And what are people going to do? It was interesting because on Instagram, on the reel, that's obviously the followers of Nine News and the Today Show, the comments were just wild. Like all of these incredible bootlickers, I said, wow, these comments are full of like people that incredibly want to suck their boss off. Just just being like, (laughs) why are we punishing people who've worked hard for their money? Like the most classic neoliberal conservative lines, like, well, maybe they come for this first and then they come for you. First they came for for the $3 million super, but I did not have $3 million (laughs) super, so I did not speak up. And But, of course, like a completely different reaction when I then saw the same video on TikTok. This is like a bit of a tangent, but it's always fascinating to me the different, yeah, like yeah. it just reminds you how how much social media is not an accurate representation of of people's responses. <laughs> of course not, no. I mean that that news story. So it was it was a Today Show reporter doing a kind of mm. satirical view. Like I'm on the streets of Double Bay, people are really hurting, and she'd enlisted locals yeah. in the joke, right? So you've got ordinary people on the street sort of saying, "Oh yeah, I'm going to have to sell my third boat, or I'm not going to be able to afford my third boat here." So, so it was all kind of funny. But it was just a bit bizarre. Like, I don't know this lady. I don't yeah. know if she's like a serious journalist or she's just like a Today Show reporter or whatever. This lady. <laughs> <laughs> this, this broad. <laughs> Sorry. But it, it was, I guess it was just sort of galling that they'd chosen that Today Show, a, a corporate mm. media function, and I believe Carl Stefanovic, the host of Today Show, was like, come out and said this is, you know, doesn't support the super changes because, of course, he's super wealthy. He's like people invested their money in this thing. They need to get the best returns, yada, yada, yada. But like this is a this is a corporate mouthpiece that would normally represent the interests of capital that sort of chose this particular policy to do this kind of well, funny angle on, which is Yeah, I mean, odd. I wondered if what had happened is that they were going to do and probably did a story on the super changes and then the journalist and the camo, like, thought it would be funny to do a little satirical bit and they filmed it and a lot of people who actually probably believe like who support those views were like yeah this is quite funny and convinced whoever makes these decisions or they thought we'll we'll put it up on social like I think they were like we'll put this on TikTok and it'll do great with a young audience and it'll engage a young audience that we struggle to to (laughs) engage and I think that they were absolutely Mm. right but yeah like it's it's just so funny because I know that probably, yeah, a lot of journalists and people working on the show would believe that but are usually prevented from doing so. But when there is a corporate motive, which would be increasing our reach on social media and engaging young people, then they can kind of dip between right. the sides, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, the the target of the satire is so obvious. Like this is sort of a gimme in terms of 
making a, a point about how ridiculous it is because the response from the likes of the opposition and the people from the self-managed super fund industry is to try and represent this change as an attack on mm. middle Australia as if ordinary people are going to be affected by these changes whatsoever. And it's so blatantly obvious to anyone, the vast majority of people in this country, that's fucking ridiculous. The average super balance is about 150K. Of course, that's a little bit um, warped as uh, zero uh, dollar accounts don't actually count mm. in the total. So, of all the people who have any money in their super account, the average super balance is about one hundred fifty k. I do. Yes. Can I ask how much you have? No, Why not? no, that's a little. You private, don't. Mike can cut it out, but I want to know. Why do I have to share that? <laughs> um, I think it's about. Uh, okay. Yeah, I have no idea how much I have. Anyway, okay. sorry. <laughs> that's okay. I like talking about wages. I think everyone should talk about wages. But anyway, yeah, that's true. I'm just a good socialist, I guess. Oh. According to The Guardian, to get a super balance of $3 million, you would need to earn 200 k from ages 21 to 67, that's with 12% employee <laughs> contributions, and an extra 30000 a year of voluntary contributions in order to get to, to $3 million. <laughs> so. 21 on 200 k cool. Very All right. Normal. Yeah, it's so normal. You know what? The poor people. Now I'm, I'm sold. Well, did you see... The take, and this is what, like, I think you you touched on this earlier about the fact that it won't be indexed to inflation because it's designed to pull in more people over time. And so there are takes that this is disproportionately affect young people. This is an attack on young people. Have you seen this? Jesus. I think this is in, like, the Financial Review. And they're like, well, mm. a young person today due to inflation who wants to retire, like, if they're 25 now, they want to retire in 40 years, the cap will only be, like, $1.2 million effectively, and so blah, blah, blah. But it's like, but even that 1.2 million is like massively above yes. the average, 150K. Uh, it's just so hilarious though, like, you know, <laughs> looking at things that actually do disproportionately impact young people like yes. the fucking housing crisis or not being able to access free education. Yeah, those outlets <laughs> won't cover shit like that. But this, they're like, yeah. The young people, yes. Or well, it's paying down the debt, which is it? it's going to be handed out to the young people. Aren't you constantly worried about that? Mm, yes. That's about young people as well. Yeah, so this is true. About, this is probably constantly. the peak uh, quote for brothers policy. I don't think $3 million is – this is from the from a, the head of the organisation that represents self-managed super fund, which were completely set up by the Howard government as a tax dodge. I don't think $3 million is a lot of money. If you've got someone who has put all of their money into super, doesn't own their own home and is renting, this person will be seriously stuffed by this sort of change. So it's someone with who's managed to get $3 million what? of money into their super, which as we've described is someone on something like 200k a year, an average of that. Yep. Who is still renting. So it's still still it's renting. Managed to sort out their own house I mean, deposit. wow, the housing market's more fucked than I thought. <laughs> so obviously, yeah, it's all it's all bullshit. But, of course, to me, the, the final question this leads to is, like, what does this mean for the Stage 3 tax cuts? They're going to cost, as we said, about $243 billion, quarter of a trillion dollars over the next decade. We were told we can't possibly change them at all because that would be represented by our political enemies as class war. That's exactly what's happened with these super mm -hmm. changes immediately. Mm -hmm. um, and it would be a broken promise. And as we've discussed, it kind of, you know, pretty broken much have promise. broken the promise. So they've done all the things that... Apparently, we're going to happen with the um, if we were to change our position on stage three for such a pittance of a return, right? They've gone through. They're going for this political fight. They're putting their political capital out there for two billion dollars a year in increased mm -hmm. revenue to pay down the debt, and it's not. And they're not even 
it's not even kicking until the next election. So they're saying it's not a broken promise. We're going to go to the next election yeah. with this policy too so people can vote on it. So why the fuck are we talking about it now would be my question. Presumably they want to factor this into the forward projections and ahead of the budget is what they're doing? Well, yeah, I guess there's that. But like I said, I do also, maybe this is conspiratorial of me, but I think it's them, it's testing the waters. Well, I think it's like even worse yeah. than that. I don't think it's even testing the waters. I think this is it. This is them throwing some meat. To the base. So when so when yeah. people like us are saying, hey, what about mm. these stage three tax cuts, motherfuckers? They're yeah. going to say, no, we're already taxing we're the rich. Super. We do tax the rich. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's interesting. Like I can see you've put this quote here from um, the Greens response from Adam Bant. And I didn't realize that it was l- quite negative. Like I, I would have expected that the Greens response would have been like, yeah, this is good. We support it. But, you know, the classic. But it is kind of just all about, yeah, like this is a distraction from or like a way to fund the state tree tax cuts, which are going to cost all this money and even the super thing won't find its way into the pockets of everyday people. So, but yeah, like I I guess it's true. It is kind of a, you know, an eye on the prize thing. It's like this is don't buy into the bullshit that this is like the the class war battle of this term of parliament. Totally. Um, Yeah. I mean, even... Even mm. if they were redirecting that two billion dollars into, you know, funding services, it's not that much. I mean, in the in, in, the, dollars, in the scheme yeah, of in the, federal budget, the fucking that's... federal budget, two hundred billion dollars is not that much. But they're not even doing that. They're just using it to pay down mm-hmm. debt to make their little figures and the red on the budget paper look a little bit mm. better because they are obsessed with being responsible economic managers. Uh, and they prioritise that over actually doing things that will improve working people's lives in the here and now in one of the worst economic conditions that we've had for, for quite a long time in this country. Which is apart from anything so politically stupid because $2 billion is not much off the trillion dollars of debt that you keep talking no. about. So you won't be able to point to a significant reduction yes. in debt when you could point to a significant delivery of some sort of like government program or cost of living relief. Like, wouldn't you want to do that, Labor? Why are you so bad at this? Why are you so bad? Anyway, drain all your super accounts, everyone. The socialists are coming for your money. It's class war. <laughs> My band. Stream class war and band camp, oh, by yeah. the way. So, Tom, I assume you are as a gay man in Sydney at World Pride. I am not. I was there last weekend for City Mardi Gras doing... Doing gigs at the comedy store. We did it. We did like an all queer lineup at the comedy store okay. on the night of the parade. <laughs> so on on the night of the That's Mardi Gras so parade, I was yelling my jokes about being gay to a room of almost e- exclusively straight people who did not give a fuck <laughs> about that Mardi Gras parade whatsoever. I still had a great time. It was a great weekend. It was cool. It was a very cool vibe in Sydney last weekend. But uh, yeah, that was a very particularly weird night. Well, we have so much to celebrate, as we will discuss. It's So I, I actually was a little bit confused about this at first, right, because it's it's Mardi Gras in Sydney, but then this year it's also World Pride, and I was like, what is that? And I understand that that is an international event that goes for yep. weeks. And that's pretty cool, right? Is it the first time that Sydney has hosted that? I think it would be the first time, yes. I think it happens every yeah. two years off the top of my head, and, yeah, uh, okay. that sort of rotates all over the place. The next one will be in 2025 in Washington, I think. Um, yes, massive, big international um, queer festival 
that yeah does the rounds and you sort of it's like the olympics you kind of bid to try and host it every every couple of years so mm, sydney's very okay. happy with itself yeah finally an ego boost for sydney you know <laughs> yeah they really need it <laughs> it's hard to miss this like there's ads everywhere everywhere from my you know the gym to the clothing store that i walk past on the way to the gym <laughs> has got like a world pride collab fundraise merch special whatever yes. it is yes. thing it's got the special rainbows on everything you're like yeah okay it's pride when are we going to get a straight pride <laughs> um just things you know <laughs> we're all thinking fight homophobia buy our products <laughs> buy bi our product um buy visibility <laughs> um but yeah, history's been made this year because for the first time, an Australian Prime Minister joined the parade, Mr. Albanese, King Ally. Yeah, there was like coverage of of this and he has, you know, him looking very pleased with himself and Labor patting <laughs> themselves on the back for being so progressive, which is good because Albanese has, you know, presented a pretty consistently solid uh, solidarity with the queer community, right, Tom? Well, look, no. And it's, uh, <laughs> we're going to do our sarcasm and explain why Labor's shit here. But I will say you do – I have a begrudging respect. He has been marching since 1983, which I think is – Yeah. And, and how much it's you invest like in – It's not like it's his first parade. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not his first parade. He's been there for a long time. And, yes, I'm sh- and being the member for Grainlow where there's a big queer community, you know, let's – broadly speaking, you know, it's just that Anthony Albanese is by no means the worst – queer phobe in the country whatsoever. But mm. what was galling about his appearance in Mardi Gras and being interviewed by the ABC was wanting to take all the credit and celebration and there was no interrogation of the fact that during the most recent election campaign, Labor was pretty happy to throw trans people and trans rights under the bus for the sake yeah. of not wanting to have the fight at all, which was horrible. Yeah, like it does feel as though we've kind of forgotten that this was a thing during the federal election campaign. There was that moment, I think, during an election debate where both candidates were asked the classic, um, you know, seemingly benign but generally used as a transphobic kind of refrain, dog whistle almost, the what, you know, what is a woman and the only acceptable answer is adult, human, female or whatever and it's like, what is the point of this question? Who fucking cares? Shut the fuck up. Yeah. But yeah, like Albanese would always give the answer that didn't make any effort to include trans people um, in the discourse. And there was even, there was like that that front or there was a spread in one of the News Corp papers where, again, they asked the dog whistle questions like, can men have babies? Which like biologically, yes, like it is possible and also who the fuck cares why is this one of the like key questions that you're asking a prime ministerial candidate yeah. um but he yeah would never go there was also the religious discrimination bill we should say well, too yeah. which as we discussed at the time <laughs> labor was terrible on and was very yeah. much leaving the door open to the idea of allowing religious schools to discriminate against people based on their sexuality or gender identity. Yeah. And it was most telling when Jeremy Fernandez was interviewing Albanese while I was marching, saying, what do you think of the fights still to come mm. for the queer community? And Albanese says, oh, we just got to think about the 78ers. <laughs> We've we really just got to yeah. think about how great they were back in the late 70s. That's the future for me. It's like, what the fuck, bro? Which- like, you, of course, can't actually take a position or identify any problem that might be facing queer no. people now. Which is kind of representative of the entire issue with the discourse around Mardi Gras and Pride, which we want to discuss, right? Like mm. it's recognising the history of 
um, pride rallies in the first place, but yeah. not just placing them in the past, actually recognizing that that the the things that those first protesters were marching against are still mm. happening to this day. And to e- ignore that is just fucking ignorant and shitty. Um, yeah. Well, the- I mean, again, the original 78 is a whole bunch of them were fucking communists. So they're march- they yeah. also marching and resisting against capitalism, exactly. which is not good for business. No. So for Qantas and Coles and stuff, the corporate partners of the Mardi Gras, that's, that is quite inconvenient to sort exactly. of talk about that, that element of the history. That's the thing. I um I went and looked at the Sydney Mardi Gras World Pride website um, and had to scroll through their sponsors, which include names like Coles, American Express, Deloitte, mm-hmm. Facebook, Google, Coca-Cola, and, of course, the New South Wales government. Have you seen any other, like, cool corporate pride things uh, swimming around this week, last couple of weeks. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, if, yeah, fucking everywhere. Every every product has a rainbow on it. Um, every single yes business or service that you interact with in, in Sydney at the moment is is rainbow branded and World Pride yeah. branded and Mardi Gras branded. The one still burnt into my mind, and I might have mentioned this last year on our episode when we had a chat to Charlie Murphy from Pride and Protest about the corporatization of Mardi Gras. Is the Colgate float years ago? Delta Goodrum on top of a giant tube of toothpaste. Going down Oxford Street into Taylor Square as part of Mardi Gras, singing on top of that uh, as Colgate, the toothpaste company, celebrated its solidarity with the queer community. Nine out of ten gay dentists recommend. <laughs> After you've sucked d- yeah. dick or eaten ass, you really want to wash that your Perfect teeth for with clearing Colgate. cum from your mouth. Um, <laughs> specially formulated. <laughs> Yes. So the history of Pride, I mean, most of our listeners will know this, but we'll run through it very quickly um, because it is relevant to the discussion that we're going to have. The first marches, first Pride marches were tributes to the 1969 Stonewall riots in New York City. So Stonewall, a gay bar that was regularly raided by police and one night, basically the people in the bar fought back. Uh, So it was fundamentally, it was a protest against police, police brutality against the queer community. And a lot of the marches continued as protests against police brutality and not just against queer people but against uh, black people in particular. And the other thing that's worth noting is that there's kind of a disputed history around Stonewall in terms of who exactly, you know, threw the first glass or brick or punch or whatever it is. Mm. A lot of reports say that trans woman Marsha P. Langton threw, like, started it was the first person to resist effectively but then that's not entirely clear but what's undeniable is like she was certainly in that community at the time played an extraordinarily undeniable role in you know queer liberation um and that protest and activist movement and that yeah there were a lot of of trans women of color who were involved in that movement the other thing i noticed when i was looking at We will get to a tweet by Lydia Thorpe about Pride, which said that the first protest was started by trans, you know, by by black and brown women of colour. And Mm. it it had one of those fact check things. It's like people have added additional context to this that you might want to see. And it said said that the first Pride marches were or like rallies were started by drag queens, which is an interest. Yeah, it's... um, because that language around, yeah, being trans 
kind of didn't exist in, you know, the 60s, 70s, a lot of trans women would kind of use interchangeably like queen, drag queen, you know, transvestite, whatever, whereas they- Yes, queen. No doubt say they were trans today. But it's, yeah, so there's all of this kind of like historical context, which I think increasingly a lot of people are aware of, but maybe the dispute is around whether the concerns that those people held, the- you know, the brutalization of queer people by police and the way that black and brown people are particularly targeted by police and trans people mm. are particularly targeted by police, whether that is just a historical issue, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, there is a, a decent argument to be made that, you know, what, what does progress look like? What does it mean to, how, how, how does the representation of how far we've we've come since the 1960s and 70s. How, how do we represent mm. that? How do we think about that? And how is that incorporated into the story of what Mardi Gras is today? I, I certainly think you can't, you know, you cannot deny that there has been some progress. And then on a whole bunch of fronts, thanks to the struggle mm. of extraordinarily brave people and activists over decades, and on a whole bunch of fronts, things are better for queer people than before. But I also have extraordinary sympathy for people who say, well, hang on, hang on, there's still so much more to go. And there are still completely unacceptable and fucked up levels of oppression and discrimination against, you know, the community as a whole, but also, you know, specifically um, trans people and people of colour that we need to keep protesting about. The the oppression you get from the corporatised version of Mardi Gras is, you know, not celebrating stuff is a real downer and pointing out how horrible things like keeping queer refugees in detention, for example. That's Ooh. like, mm, come on, yeah. guys. It's a bit of a downer. It's a bit not? of a party. Yeah, here, it's actually. really, I mean, yeah. it is quite almost a literal, <laughs> like, don't rain on our parade kind of <laughs> um, refrain. And but, but it's not just a historical issue. That's right. Like even at Mardi Gras, at World Pride, um, Greens MP Kate Fairman was posting about a really heavy police presence, sniffer dogs. Were there even strip searches happening, like, around the parade, it's it's clear that, like, this is still an ongoing issue. And and we would know that even from, you know, mm. the Black Lives Matter movement and from First Nations deaths in custody and the continued police targeting and incarceration of First Nations people in particular in this country, which is why it is little mm. surprise that Senator Lydia Thorpe, now independent, former Green Senator for Victoria, um, who is a staunch First Nations activist, decided to lie down in front of a float in the Mardi Gras parade on Saturday night, temporarily halting it to protest police violence. Um, Mm. She was eventually escorted out by police and there's footage of her doing this, lying down in front of, of this float in front of a truck. That, you know, was circulated on, on social media and got a fair bit of media coverage how did you come across this bit of of news? Like, what do you think about how it kind of spread? Yeah, it was it was very confusing. Yeah, I suppose, and it sort well, of yeah dripped through in a number of different fronts. I'm talking about the reporting, mm. which you know primarily started on on Twitter, or at least that's how it came into my life, and I came across it. And to me, it sort of seemed to be Lydia Thorpe has done a protest. Then the information was that she lay down in front of the uh, float for the Australian Federal Police. Then it turned out. Then it was reported that it wasn't, in fact, the Australian Federal Police float. Then it was 2010, a youth-focused LGBTQA plus uh, charity. Q outcry from all the usual suspects. 
people who invested in Mardi Gras, people in the centre left who don't like Lydia Thorpe, and of course the crazy right wing and batshit Sky News reaction. Yeah. So a lot of the, I mean, I'm sure if she if she had laid down in front of a cop float, exactly the same people would have had exactly yeah. the same kind of outrageous reaction. But then some other people who might be more sympathetic to Lydia thought, thought there was a level of confusion there, either on Lydia's part or the news reporting that somewhat muddied the impact of the of the protest that was happening. I think it's also important to underline that she was she was marching with Pride in Protest, which yeah. is that organization that we talked to um, last week, who were explicitly anti-cop in Mardi Gras, who really are focused, a grassroots protest group that is really focused on trying to return Mardi Gras and Pride to their protest radical left-wing anti-capitalist origin. Yeah, she was marching with the No Pride in Genocide float that was organised by Pride in Protest. They specifically right. called for police not to march as a block at Pride, not to march in uniform yep. or, or as a block. And so, like, I think this is the thing for me that I think it was very clear what she was protesting and it was kind of perplexing the way that the discussion around this video and the protest ended up focusing on what float was she in front of. I think because, yeah, like, for example, SBS tweeted the video and said that she just said that she'd lay down in front of a, of a float blocking the parade. And everyone was saying, well, what float? What float? Because they thought that it was a police one and that it was, it was missing relevant context. And so when it came out that it wasn't the police one, people were kind of like, oh, you look so stupid for asking what float when it wasn't even that. And it's like, but what was the protest about? Because the fact remains, and this yeah. is like the gripe that I have a lot with the way that the, the media reports protests, is this mentality that like by reporting on the subject of the protest, you're endorsing it. And because journalists are so fucking afraid of being seen as having any yes. kind of opinion or like existing in the world of politics, mm. um, that they'll just yes. eliminate that. Like they, you know, they'll talk about protests about coal and gas and just kind of they'll say, oh, protesters, activists in parliament were arrested. And you're like, for fucking what? For what? What were they saying? Yeah, because yeah. because there is, because the, like direct action like that is not seen as politically acceptable by the political and media class. And so they're like, well, we don't want to encourage yes. that because the objective of that protest is a lot like it's to get media attention, it's to draw attention to something. And so they're like, well, we don't yeah. want to give attention to it, but we will report it because we know that people are going to want to read and get angry about Lydia Thorpe like the fucking, yes. you know, public enemy number one as we've created her in the eye of the Australian public. We want to talk about her doing something, but we don't want to talk about the actual yeah. issue itself. The actual issue in any way, that's a little bit yeah. too messy. The media never seems to apply this critique to itself when it's like accepting leaks from politicians yeah. uh, to, to further their political agenda. They're like, oh, no, that's a really juicy story. We're going to run without that. There'll be no worries. But in terms of, yeah, giving voice to or giving a fair reading of what these protesters mm. are about, well, that's, that's too messy. That's below the status of the fourth estate. Yeah, because relationships between media and politicians are absolutely accepted and encouraged, um, yes. whereas direct action protest is not. And so, I mean, I found it interesting, yep. like when I was looking for stories and you Google Lydia Thorpe, Mardi Gras protest, something like that, you mm. know, Google comes up with those suggested questions. And there's the first question is, why did Lydia Thorpe stop Mardi Gras? And you click on that question, there's no answer. The answer is just something like police led her away from the protest, you know? Like it is fascinating that, yeah, <laughs> Google can't Christ. even figure out the answer to that question because it was so poorly reported, which mm. then I guess raises the question because it was so poorly reported, but I would argue, I mean, surely everyone knows what the fuck is happening. Was the protest effective? Mm. Well, I mean, I still, it sounds like we might disagree a little bit. Like our good friend Tom Tanaki mm. was tweeting about this, right? And he said, hey, it's bullshit that this, the, the, the reporting on Lydia's protest is not mentioning that she lay down in front of the cop float. 
And he then had to delete those tweets and then apologize. Sort of say, okay, I wasn't on the ground. I made a mistake here. Okay. Now, if, 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 it's, if it's a symbolic protest, which it was, I think we would agree that that symbolic value, the impact, the messaging of the protest would be stronger if she was literally laying down in front of the AFP, AFP float or, or the cop float. That would just, it would just kind make of, more sense. That's all. Yeah. But, but to me, I think also what, like, like I said, she's, she's marching with that pride in protest group, right? Which has protested the inclusion of yep. police in pride. And so, to my mind, halting yes. the parade that has like literally put AFP at the, you know, like in the fucking parade on its own float in uniform, I think halting that parade mm. is necessarily connected to the point that she was trying to make. And like maybe it would have been somewhat clear if it was front in front of the AFP, sure. But as I understand it, it was because the AFP section of the parade was like in one section. She was having a go at officers there. She was kind of, you know, standing in, in front of them and and um, you know, chanting ACAB or mm. whatever, and directly behind them was this next float, this Q-Life float, and so she's just lay down there in that in that section. Yeah. But I still think that, yeah, the message is is quite clear mm. from from that. But mm. It would have been cool if, I don't know, if, if everybody else laid down too. So that, so, so that was another thing well, where yeah. it's like, okay, so this does become about Lydia Thorpe and solidarity to her for doing that too, but like a collective action in Taylor Square, for example, like laying down and stopping the flow. Again, I have no issue with stopping the flow whatsoever, with stopping the parade whatsoever, protesting <laughs> in the Mardi Gras parade, which is a fucking protest, totally acceptable, and I don't think the cops should march and, you know, people organising against that is, is good. But if you just want to talk about cut through and some of the confusion or the shitty media coverage could have been predicted if you actually looked at the strategy of the protest, and I think that's a reasonable critique. Yeah, and I think... Like this is, yeah, the, the critique that came from a lot of corners was Lydia, who, as I understand it, doesn't openly identify as a queer woman, is you know, taking up space at, at Pride. And the fucking David Little no. crowd from the Nationals was quoted in the media saying, it's not about you, Lydia. Like, stop trying to make it all about you. Which, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like. Famous ally of the queer community, the Nationals. Again, how not to understand solidarity and how not to understand what this fucking <laughs> event is actually meant to be about, but perhaps no longer is about. And you, uh, what was really striking for me is watching that video where she's lying yeah. in front of the float is all you can hear is like resounding boos. There are like people in the crowd, people watching the parade are like get rid of her, booing yep. incredibly loudly. They're pissed off that she's like ruining the party because, yeah, maybe there was genuine confusion about who she was, what was happening. I find that kind yep. of hard to believe. I think she's very recognisable. She was wearing a lot of, you know, she was wearing Aboriginal flag. Like she had clearly been there to advance a particular message about police brutality against people of colour and First Nations people, and yet people were not fucking having it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, animosity towards the police mm. is still a minority position. People lighting the road, lighting the, the, the streets of Mardi Gras to cheer on the parade at this point, yeah. because of the massive spectacle and tourist attraction that Mardi Gras has become, are not there, uh, are socially liberal, but are not there invested in yeah, a yeah. structural critique of our modern capitalist society and the role that the police play in that. They like seeing mm. gay people queer people who mm, feel they can yeah. march openly, can be themselves at their workplace, even if that is the police force. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So it so I'm fun, sure that these it? people would have cheered the police yeah. marching by just as much vigor as all the other fun floats. Okay. Like that's, again, that's just, that's just where we've got to. Yeah. 
And it is important to celebrate wins. Yeah, and I want I want to have some level of sympathy or an acknowledgement of the fact that that's a yeah, decent yeah. there there is a decent sort of core to that in a way, a decent impulse that you want people to be happy. Yes, to celebrate the wins and to you know, as fucked as we think the police is as an institution, while the police exists, any queer people who are in the police force, sh- you know, should should not face any discrimination or shouldn't be able to be who they are. Yeah, and to be clear, they should be able to march as queer people. Like the Pride and Protest folks are not saying that cops shouldn't be able to march at all by virtue of them being police. They're saying they shouldn't march in uniform and they shouldn't right, march yes. as a block representing the police as an institution. There, there was this article in The Conversation, which a few yes. points I'm kind of, you know, I don't agree with uh, by Justin Ellis, but discussing this this protest. And I thought it was interesting that he pointed out that the the, the context of Sydney hosting World Pride kind of, further entrenches this event as like a massive public relations um, exercise. He he says like the parade as a vehicle for disruption to amplify awareness about intractable social issues mm. can be at odds with the broader yeah. ordered public relations objective of Mardi Gras. And that's amplified in this context. I know you were saying that there were rumors that the organizers of of Mardi Gras were considering a, a ban on, on Lydia. Is that, I wasn't able to find more reporting on that. Yes. Yeah, look, I mean, I don't, I, I don't have any evidence to take it very seriously other than screenshots somewhere of prominent figures that run Mardi Gras wow. uh, being, being very angry at Lydia. I think someone says, what is she even protesting? Looking, Which is yeah, a pretty okay, incredible wow. phrase. But then literally someone's saying, we need to introduce a lifetime ban and someone else says, I'm looking into this and I'll get back to you. This would be the first ever lifetime ban from the parade in uh, the parade's history. Uh, it would be an extraordinary move and an outrage if that were to happen for <laughs> banning a black Aboriginal woman standing in solidarity with queer people at a fucking protest for protesting would be insane. <laughs> the same thing happened. I mean, I remember I think years ago when the Labor Party were floating, uh, the Labor Party were marching, mm-hmm. Pride in protest were trying to point to the Labor yeah. float saying, hey, don't uh, yeah. torture refugees, please, because there are queer people in there. And organisers from Mardi Gras yeah. coming down and saying, shut up, this is this is bad for us, you know, respect these guys. This guy could be the next prime minister. Okay, so you be nice. Yeah, like all of this, it's just such a, it's like an encapsulation of how liberal politics runs up against like truly emancipatory aims. And it's like, yes, absolutely, queer people have it a lot better than they did decades ago. Like there's you know, incredible queer representation yeah. on our on our screens and in pop culture. Um, it's it's easier to be openly queer, mm. you know, even growing up and and especially in workplaces and that sort of thing. Um, there is a celebration of queer people as as valid and, you know, and well, I mean we have marriage equality, for for example. But these advancements are done like the advancements that we've won mm. are almost all ones that do not disrupt or threaten the power of capital and the state. And it's just, yeah, like I think that we need to to keep that in mind. Like that article by Justin Ellis is kind of proposing that actually mm. corporatization isn't mut- mutually exclusive with a genuine protest against social issues and like maybe queer people need this security presence to protect them against extremism. And it's like, what kind of security presence though, you know, to perpetuate that idea that only the police can protect us or Mm. that what we need to be aiming for is inclusion in an inherently oppressive capitalist economic system. It's just not, it's not for me. And I hope that, you know, (laughs) like that a lot of those people, particularly like young people who might've been on the sidelines 
watching Lydia's protest or seeing protests against pride, young people, queer people in particular, and feeling annoyed about it and, and angry about it because they're like, well, this doesn't recognize progress would eventually, yeah, like that we can bring, bring those people into a movement that's like, yeah, but what kind of progress uh. and what power, whose power does it entrench ultimately? Uh. Yes, and how are we pinkwashing horrible forces within our society to keep doing worse stuff? Qantas hates unions, okay? <laughs> yeah, Qantas, Qantas massive, big, shiny friend of Mardi Gras mm. run by a gay guy, mm. of course, staff yes. with lots of queer people who are on the busting. side. They hate unions, okay? And if you want to seriously change the workforce to fight against discrimination against queer people, to win things like transition leave mm. for trans people, you need a strong union movement. So these massive corporate giants who fucking hate unions, they're not allies of ours. And giving them this rainbow pass uh, every fucking year on one of the biggest stages in Australian yeah. culture is is a disgrace yeah. and, and absolutely should be resisted. And thanks to the work of Pride and Protest, uh, that some major corporate sponsors like the, I forget the name, but the Gilead or whatever, mm. who were charging people crazy money for prep legislation have been removed as sponsors. So this stuff does work. Yeah. And I think Pride and Protest deserve a huge amount of love and solidarity and, you know, respect for the kind of organising they've done within the um, Australian queer community to try and mm. raise these issues and say to people, look, we don't have to accept this and we should actually push yeah. back against the influence of big capital taking over our little gay parade. Yeah, because we know this shit works because we're literally holding a march commemorating <laughs> like violent, direct, active protest. Yes, yes. There's a there's an article that maybe I'll I'll finish on this quote from this article and we can put the link in the show notes to an article by Sandy O'Sullivan in Indigenous X called Pride and Protest. But it says it concludes with for some a protest may seem unnecessary. In their utopia, they already have all the rights they need. And perhaps they do. But in the spirit of the first ongoing colonization of this country that disproportionately affects queer Indigenous people across the backdrop of an international and homegrown climate where trans people are suffering constant abuse, expecting allyship from other queer people to protest while celebrating is a basic kindness. During an interview last night, our guest told a joke which we know was deeply and needlessly offensive to many of you. We want to acknowledge the particular offence and hurt that that caused our Muslim, but especially our Christian viewers. Uh, obviously, I understand just how profound that offence was. Yeah, live TV is it's unpredictable. And when this happened in the last few moments of last night's show, it genuinely took us all by surprise. And there wasn't a lot of time to react in any sort of considered way. Uh, it's fair to say we weren't expecting a comment like that to be made. We wouldn't knowingly broadcast it, of course. We acknowledge the offence that it caused, but more than that, we're sorry. I love Jesus. I love any man who can get nailed for three days straight and come back for more. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to help out Pride and Protest, check them out on Facebook. They're on socials too. We'll put a link through in the show notes. Um, they do fantastic stuff. They run to try and get on the uh, Mardi Gras board and organise motions at the AGM to try and make Mardi Gras less, uh, more radical and less shit. Um, so, yeah, support them if you can. Pride and Protest, just have a search for them on social media and um, follow them and get involved if you can. Mm. That's our main call to action. I know we kind of keep putting in multiple calls to action, uh, but I do want to cheekily re-up previous ones like helping the Greens in the New South Wales state election if you can. There are links to donate or volunteer or join an event in the show notes. And also just noting that the coming week we uh, Federal Parliament will be sitting again and the 
balance of power negotiations on the safeguard mechanism for climate and the housing legislation bill are ongoing. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, if you can contact Labor MPs and Labor senators to support the Greens amendments and Greens plans on those two areas, particularly the housing one, that would be fantastic. Great review the show on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, that would be much appreciated. Check us out on Patreon with Serious Danger AU on all the socials on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok for as long as we're allowed to use TikTok in this country before it's banned by <laughs> the Australian government for fear of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, check out Serious Danger. You can send us an email anytime. Hello at SeriousDangerPod.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Mwah. Mwah. Serious Danger, Australia.